Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions, with your host, Rev. Paul John Roach. So, hello and welcome to World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas. Today, I welcome the author of a powerful new book entitled The Illusion of Life and Death mind consciousness and eternal being the author claire goldsbury has been a lifelong student of religion which has taken her from protestant christianity to mormonism to the ageless wisdom tradition through gnosticism into hinduism and buddhism and she's written for many magazines including quest magazine and has published six books uh, on marketing and sales strategies, as well as operating a marketing and public relations business, and is deeply into molded plastic, I believe. So it covers the the spectrum here, from the deep spirituality all the way over to plastics. So it's <laughs> it's a pleasure to welcome Claire Goldsbury to today's show. Claire, glad you're with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, and and I must say, I've I've finally retired uh, from uh, from writing about plastics and am fully engaged in, in embracing um, writing about spirituality, spiritual and religious traditions, which is something that uh, I've long wanted to do. So I can I'm proud to say that I'm now, you know into what I really, really love. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, good. And that's what we're going to talk. We weren't going to talk about plastics today. We're going to talk <laughs> about the uh, wonderful book uh, about life and death and what what those two mysterious things truly are. And Claire, much of the book is informed, of course, by your relationship with your partner, Brent, right? As he was uh, dealing with going through the, the, the cancer experience and and his response to that, he seems like a a remarkably wise person from what you write. Yes, he really was. And and people often ask me what religion he practiced, or uh, was he you know a Buddhist practitioner, or just how did he have this attitude that was so open and all embracing and fearless. And I say, no, he didn't practice any religion. He had just a regular, normal life, really. His father had died of uh, stomach cancer when Brent was 16. So that was kind of his uh, introduction to death from his standpoint in life. 
but he never really feared it. And when he got the diagnosis of esophageal cancer, which uh, is almost always uh, fatal, uh, they said within six to 12 months, um, he just looked at me and said, wow, this is going to be another good adventure. And I was just stunned because I'd never known anybody with cancer, and I had certainly never dreamed that um, that Brent would ever, you know, have cancer. Um, and so it was really eye-opening for me uh, to see how he looked at uh, the journey and how open he was to it all. And here I was, the student of lifelong student of religion and, and spiritual traditions, and I'm sitting there going, "Oh my goodness, what's what's going to happen next?" So it was really the beginning of a of an amazing journey that really gave me more than just the intellectual understanding of death that I had been learning through my uh, almost ten years of studying and, and practicing Buddhism and uh, gave me a real, uh, true insight into this thing we call life and death. I, th I think that's brilliant because, uh, you know, so often we buy into systems of belief, right, that explain, supposedly explain what the mysteries are, the mysteries of death, what happens after we die, etc. But, you know, they, they can be glib sometimes, can't they? They can be intellectual but not something we really feel to be true and sometimes people who don't necessarily have a a particular tradition but but are open right to what's going on who are attentive to the moment you know can have a wiser feel than than some of us who are quote religionists right so and then part of right. course is about that right i was listening to a song by paul mccartney yesterday and it and, and it says uh, we don't need anybody else to tell us what's real inside. You know, we're love and we know how it feels. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but but I thought that's so true. You know, it's it's you have to trust yourself. Right. It's not about buying into a system. It's it's trusting the inner, inner wisdom of the universe, which is pouring through you every moment. Exactly. And I think often we do get caught up in in the dogmas and the doctrines and and we fail to to really recognize um, at a real uh, at a real deep level uh, what it all really means. Um, and I think we get too attached to the dogmas and the doctrines. And I think that often gets in the way of of really gaining um, a realization of what's life and death and and what it really means to be alive, and what does it mean to die? And I think that from a, a, an Eastern philosophy standpoint, I think they are perhaps much better at understanding living and dying uh, than we in the West have been. And I know growing up a uh, mainstream Christian, um, nobody ever talked about death. Uh, nobody ever talked about what is dying, the dying process. Um, very few, um, I guess, you know, uh, sermons about life and death uh, were ever preached. And I, I can remember thinking, well, I have no idea what death is. 
until I got into studying the Eastern philosophies. And that was the first encounter I had with actually studying about it. And then, of course, with Brent's diagnosis, then that is like in your face. Here it is. You think yeah. you know. Do you really? Right. <laughs> and exactly. so then you get a chance to, to, you know, to meet those challenges and examine yourself and, and really start understanding what this is all about. Well, in some ways, you know, death was a taboo subject, right? We just don't want to talk about it, right? Sweep it under the carpet and, and right. emphasize life at all costs, you know, live life to the full, whatever that means. And yet, I don't think, and you mentioned this in the book, you can't really live your life to the full unless you've come to terms with death, because otherwise you're in some kind of denial, right? You're trying to force life, you're trying to squeeze everything out of life. Well, but part of the balance, part of the joy of living is to know that, you know, death is inevitable in that sense that, the, you know, the body dissolves ultimately, right? Right, right. And I think uh, some of the most uh, most fearless people I've known were people that they really weren't afraid of death. And so they just went out there and, and lived life. Uh, you know, they just, you know, they jump off of mountaintops in a hang glider. And they, you know, or they do things that is like, you know, or they, they uh, climb, they do rock climbing with, you know, virtually no protective gear. And you think, wow, how could they do that? And yet I've heard them interviewed and they say, well, you know, I'm just not, I'm not afraid to die. I just love what I do in life and I'm not afraid to die. And I think, what a great attitude that is because you really can't live your life to the fullest you're afraid you're going to die so i think it's important you know to to look at life as okay i'm going to do this because i love doing it and eh, you know death i'll worry about that later (laughs) because we should point out we don't all have to become extreme sports people as a result (laughs) of overcoming right there's different ways of being courageous and, and overcoming you know the fear of death you know I'm not I'm not right. ready to jump off a cliff yet, you know, uh, <laughs> but I, I'm ready to metaphorically jump off cliffs, you know, uh, right. perhaps, but, but not necessarily Sometimes just getting yeah, right. Sometimes just getting out of bed in the morning is a risk. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I know all about that. You know, that. it's like, re- what's today going to bring, you know? You yeah, don't have exactly. to jump off a cliff. You can just get out of bed and say, wow, I'm alive. What's up today? Well, I fell in the lake about six weeks ago, and not by not by choice, and uh, completely broke my <laughs> up my shoulder and had to have a shoulder replacement. So I know only too well, you know, you're going about your business, and oops, something happens. So, yeah, life life is precarious in that sense. The thing is, life and death are not opposites, right? Um, you know, and we often think they are, but really, it's it's uh, death is simply a doorway to more life, right? It's um, it's a transition, so it's it's not like it's the the end of this wonderful thing that we have called life. It's you know, we see death all around us anyway on a daily basis. We have died many times in a sense, right? You mentioned that too. Right. That all the cells in our bodies have been replaced many times. We're not the person we were when we were eighteen. You know, thank God, right? Life ch- <laughs> is about change and and transformation. So so really, death is is, is a form of transformation, isn't it? It is. It's uh, some people like to call it not from from birth to death, but from birth to birth 
to birth to birth. Uh, mm-hmm. We're always being reborn in some way, even throughout our physical lives, as you pointed out. You know, our cells change, you know, almost on a daily basis. And every part about us, as you as you noted, you know, we're not what we were when we were 18. And uh, so we just, we learn that it's a transition, it's a transformation that we live this life, we, we give up this physical vehicle that enables us to live life, and we go on to another life. So it's really from, from birth to birth or life to life, and to think of it as death, that is kind of a, a strange connotation because it's sort of like the end. Well, it's never the end. It's always just a new beginning. And I think that's important to remember too. But it's it's difficult, I think, for people in the West because of a of an idea they have that we're born at X and we die at X. And in between is life but we don't know what's after, but we have this one life, one life to live, and that's it. So you better get it right, because if you don't, well, who knows, you know. If you do, you might be lucky. If you don't, maybe not so much. So I think there's this this idea, uh, particularly in the West, of of this one life. And I think that's, detrimental to being able to really live life fully because I know a person every day she's like well I just I just hope I'm doing the right things today so that when I die I go to heaven Um, and she's never sure if it's the right thing and she's always kind of confused about you know is is this what I'm supposed to be doing what if it's not well what if I die and then I don't do what I'm supposed to do so I think there's always this uh, this confusion among Western thinkers of the Judeo-Christian tradition that that leaves them unsure. And I think the Eastern philosophies kind of take care of that. It's like, you know, be in the present, be in today, but don't, you know, don't get so wrapped up in, well, what's, you know, what's the end? There is no end. There's only new beginnings. And I think uh, we live a very linear-oriented life, don't we, in, yeah. in, uh, in, in yeah. the scientific West. You know, the, like you said, we go from X to Y, and then we die, and, and then we see what happens afterwards. Hopefully, it's heaven, whatever. But, you know, life is not a, a linear pattern like that. It's, it's definitely more of a cycle, um, you know, a spiral, if you like, isn't it? And uh, the East seems to point that out clearly. The wheel of, of, of life, you know, the the wheel of rebirth. Um, that that whole idea that it's 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 not linear. Um, and of course, yeah, we have this promise, don't we, in in the West, especially in conventional Christianity, and you see it in Islam and and uh, Judaism as well. You know, this idea that if you do good, you'll you'll go to this place called heaven and do bad you go to hell whereas you know i think most traditions outside of the west and certainly in the mystical traditions in the west you know see that that and we certainly do this in unity we see that heaven and hell are not places so much as states of mind right states of being right and and you can be in 
right now, right? You don't have to wait till you die, you know. And you could be in heaven right now. It's, it's that's a right. State, a state of awareness. So, and you, I think the you know from my, what I've worked out in my life is you know where I am in consciousness, you know, when I die is probably where I'm going to go after. After I die, you know, I'm going to be in that level of awareness. So I'll, I'll, I'll experience things, uh, you know, in such degree. So, yeah, it's 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 salutary to live a good life. Right. Because um, that probably guarantees, you know, where, what's going to happen next. But you're not doing it for that. You're doing it because this is what you want to be. You want to you want to live expansively in the moment. Right. That's that's all. And right. Jesus said, you know, don't worry about let the dead bury the dead, you know, live your life to the full uh, in a loving right. and giving way right now. That's, that's so true. That's so true. And I think the the most difficult thing for people to understand is that uh, heaven and hell are not places where we go, as you pointed out. Uh, in Buddhism, you know, nirvana isn't going somewhere. Nirvana can be right here, right now. It depends on your state of mind. It depends on your attitude. It depends on how you look at life. It depends on your perspectives. Um, you know, if you're always expecting life to be different than it is, you're never going to be happy. Um, and so you'll never experience nirvana. So it's really just how you see life. How you live your life now is nirvana or heaven. Um, and it can also be hell. Um, I know a lot of people who believe that life here and now is hell. So I think we have to be careful of our thoughts and how we perceive things. Well, we have compassion for ourselves and others, right? Because we're we're all fighting a great battle, as the uh, the truism states, right? That life is suffering, uh, and you talk a lot about Buddhism, and uh, life is unsatisfactory. It's it's got sort of an edge to it that's discomforting sometimes. But, you know, that's that's what we've got to de- deal with. Right. That's the raw material. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, suffering is caused by by clinging to things, you know, hoping they won't change or wishing they would change or just being plain ignorant about the whole thing. Um, and so we can't <laughs> see we can't see clearly, can we? Because uh, we're, we're trying to make it happen the way we want it, which all comes down to the idea of who are we in the first place? Right. We. Another bad habit we have, and I think this is worldwide, is we buy into this idea we have about ourselves that we are an ego, that we are a personality, you know, we hope it's going to live forever. Well, is it even living now? You know, the older I get, the the less sure I am that I am me, you know, I am I'm much vaster than that. And and, um, I'm both less and more than I think I am. Mm, very much so, yes, yes. I think we do limit ourselves um, in in a lot of ways. And I think we limit ourselves by our attitudes. Uh, I know the Buddha talks about the three poisons, attachment, hatred, and ignorance. Uh, attachment, attachment to things that we, that we want, attachment to, to attitudes. You know, I don't want life to change. I didn't want that diagnosis of a terminal disease, um, you know, and hatred or anger. Um, and that's often caused by not getting what we want. And and then ignorance, ignorance of how things really exist. 
And how do things exist? How do we create the world around us? We each create the life we have. We each create the world around us. And I think we see that among uh, the quantum physics uh, philosophies now. The quantum physicists have done a whole lot to help us understand how we create matter. How does mind create matter? Um, and I think that that's something that the Eastern philosophies have, have understood quite well. And the, the quantum physicists have kind of uh, recognized that and have even pulled it into the scientific realms that, that, they, uh, that they have uh, developed. Well, of course, we have this, quote, hard problem of consciousness, right, that people <laughs> in various disciplines are struggling with, whether it be psychology or or physicists or whatever, um, philosophers, you know, does does consciousness arise from evolutionary processes, right, from the physical, or is it pre-existent? Of course, reading your, the book that you've just written, um, it's obvious where you stand on it, right, that consciousness <laughs> is pre-existent, and um, you have many different traditions and, and teachers to, to bolster that, to back that up. Um, I, of course, in unity, we would say that life is consciousness and it, you know, it comes first, right? That um, it informs everything else. But there are some that say, oh, no, you know, it's, it arises as we get more and more sophisticated then consciousness appears, right? Yes, there are some, some different um, ideas about it. I know I still read uh, some of the, the scientists that will equate brain and mind. And, uh, of course, in the Eastern philosophies, mind is, uh, is consciousness. Um, mind is, is not the brain. I always tell people the brain is the hardware, the mind is the software. Um, and I think that, that that's, that's something, you know, that we can kind of grasp onto because, of course, we know computers. I do think that um, looking at, at the way we see consciousness um, and the way some of the quantum physicists talk about consciousness is that it is just pure awareness. Um, and one of my favorite quantum physicists, Fred Allen Wolf, says that, that there is no out there out there, that yeah. everything is created in the mind by the mind. And that's, that's a very Buddhist quote, too, that I learned when I was attending the Sangha. Uh, our teacher used to say, Everything is created in the mind, by the mind. There is no inherent existence out there of anything. All phenomenon is, is created in the mind, by the mind. And uh, Fred Allen Wolf used to say, yes, there is no out there, out there. It's all in here. <laughs> I, think the I, key love, word, I love that quote. <laughs> I love it, too. It's great. Um, I think the key word there though, that you used was uh, inherent, right? I think so, right. some some teachings go, you know, just as far as to say, well, everything else is an illusion, you know, that there's no reality to it. And yet it seems to be real when you are suffering and going through terrible pain. And then, you know, you see all the terrible things that are happening around the world um, that has a relative reality. And I, and I, I think that there is, a, you know, there's no inherent reality to it because it's the, the 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 Maya that you talk about, you know, the play of forces, the Leela of the universe, the play, but it's it, it, it does have some significance. 
I, I like the idea of Purusha and Prakriti because, you know, the Purusha being the, the you know, the ultimate um, divine consciousness, if you like, and, and Prakriti being the uh, the energy that, that arises from that consciousness. And they do a little dance together. It's Shiva Shakti dancing. Right. To create the right. universe, right? Like yin and yang, if you like. Uh, and I like that right. because I think, you know, the, 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 you can't have the one without the other, right? The, the undifferentiated consciousness is, is, is nothing until it decides through its own energy, its own desire to, to create um, the universe, right? And once that's created, once the, the volition is there, then they come, it comes into being. So it, it, they're both dependent on each other in a way, if, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, very much so. And I think people often misunderstand the idea of illusion. Um, I know the Eastern philosophies often are criticized because uh, it's illusion. Um, and, and I think that's misunderstood because you can look at a magician, and a magician is an illusionist. And all illusion is, is is a mistaken idea of what is really there. Um, a magician can, can perform an illusion, and what you see happening is not what's really happening. And that's sort of like the world around us that we create. It's, we call it illusion because it is not what we think it is. We believe it's solid inherently real, inherently existent, there forever, and will be here even if we're not here to observe it. And, of course, quantum physicists would say, well, you've got the observer effect. Anything only exists because it has an observer. And that's kind of the Purusha Prakriti thing as well. Yeah. You know, case in point, the, the kind of a, a thought experiment that I had when I fell off the boat, uh, I didn't realize how badly I'd broken my arm, but I was holding on to the metal underneath the dock. And um, uh, with my right hand, it, it, the dock was solid. When I, when I held it with my left hand, the, it appeared to be spongy. Well, it wasn't spongy. It was my arm that was spongy because it was not connected anymore. But my brain told me that the dock was spongy, right? because it didn't have the signals. Its signals got mixed up. So reality became a very different thing for my left arm than my right arm. It took me a while to work out, oh, wait a minute, I must have done something to this arm so it's not sending the right signals anymore. But (laughs) incredible. Whoops, I hear the music. We're at the break, folks. Uh, I'm with Claire Goldsbury. We're going to come back and talk about the illusion of life and death after these messages from Unity. Join us then. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 You're listening to Unity Online Radio. 
voice of an awakening world. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. Hi, welcome back to today's show. I'm with Claire Goldsbury, and we're talking about her book, The Illusion of Life and Death, Mind, Consciousness, and Eternal Being. Let me tell you about next week's show, though, before we get back. Um, next week, uh, internationally known author, speaker, and leading thinker in consciousness and contemporary spirituality, Peter Russell, joins me to talk about his new book. It's called Letting Go of Nothing. I love that. Letting go of nothing. Relax your mind and discover the wonder of your true nature. So that's going to be an interesting show, I think. And uh, I know Claire qu uh, quotes Peter in, in her book, too. So um, that's next week. And uh, But now let's talk more about this fascinating book, The Illusion of Life and Death. Um, you know, we get, we get so attached to things, right? And uh, this can be a real difficulty. And in, and in Buddhism, which you talk a lot about in the book, um, there's, there's an emphasis on non-attachment. People don't like that, though. They think I have to let go of everything. You know, oh, my God, I don't want to. I'm attached to my, my loved ones, my possessions. But it's not so much letting them go, is it? it, it it's having them, but not being... Um, thinking that they are always going to be there, right? There's a, there's a sense of preciousness in, in knowing that they don't belong to you, right? You can't own them. Uh, and so really, in a sense, you can be more present to someone or to a, a, a possession because you realize, wow, this is a great gift here, right? Uh, so non-attachment doesn't mean giving them up. It means looking at, at it in a different way, right? Right, right. Yes, I, I've often been criticized uh, at classes that I've taught uh, on uh, on non-attachment because people think, well, you're you're detaching from everything. No, it's not detachment. It's non-attachment. It's um, it's recognizing the impermanence of everything, whether it's material things, whether it's relationships, uh, whether it's you know people, pets, whatever. It's all impermanent. And I think one of the big um, uh, benefits that I've received from um, studying Buddhism is, is the idea that change is real. Change is every day. Um, and, and everything is impermanent. Nothing stays the same forever. And I think when we talk about non-attachment, it's fine to have things. Where you get into trouble is when you believe that these things will always be there. Uh, when you believe that the people around you will always be there. Um, then then you, you suffer when you lose these things or you lose a relationship or you lose a good friend. Um, and so why do we come, become attached to everything when we know that it's impermanent and yet we're not really taught that all things are impermanent. Uh, we're taught that, oh, this is, you know, the way life is. And, and I, I used to have all these expectations that things were going to be this way or that way. And it really wasn't until I began studying the Eastern philosophies that I really looked at everything and go, okay, it's all impermanent. I don't know what's going to be here tomorrow. 
I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow. Um, and so when we create this, this idea of non-attachment, we actually do it from a standpoint that our ego is no longer involved in it. You know, when, when you have it, when you're attached to things, it's I, my, my car, my house, you know, my uh, significant other, my wife, my husband, my children. And so the ego is always part of that. Yes. And I think non-attachment involves kind of a release of the ego of this. Um, and, and it actually allows us to be more compassionate. I've had people accuse me of, you know, not being compassionate, you know. Well, can you be compassionate if, you, you know, you're not attached? And yet you can actually be more compassionate because you are not in this anymore. And so you can be actually more compassionate. Absolutely, and I think that's it's counterintuitive, and yet it's true. You know, it's profoundly true, right? Um, the, the more you can let go, the more you have. It's it's the the nature of the universe. Um, but that's so hard to get our heads around, especially our egos. I remember when I was younger, you know, and reading these ideas and studying these ideas about uh, no self, no inherent self, and thinking, oh my goodness, no. You know, I, I want to survive. I want to get, you know, they want there to be a Paul next lifetime, you know. But now as I get older, it's like, really? Uh, this guy again? You know, I, I think it'd be great to just let him go now because I'm less attached, I'm less, less attached to the idea of me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more uh, aware of this I, 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 nothingness that's everything, right? That, that uh, to be nothing is actually freeing. I, I, yeah, it's and, and it doesn't have to be a, a something to fear. I think Brent, your your partner, you know, went through that uh, understanding. You know, you describe it beautifully in the book. Um, you know that that he 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 didn't buy into this idea that, that uh, you know that his ego had had to be uh, around forever. He, he was open to the levels of reality. And you asked him, you know, what's it like there? And that's and he said, well, it's more real and more beautiful than even the most beautiful things here, you know, after he'd had some inkling of the other side. And I, I think many people who've had near-death experiences have, have conveyed that same same idea, right? That it, it, this, yeah. this is the veil of tears where we're in right now. You know, the, the joy is on the other side and we can experience that other side anytime because it interpenetrates who we are right now, right? We can, we can have that opening. Right, right. Yes, that's very true. That's very true. So, you know, Charles Fillmore, uh, the co-founder of Unity, uh, wanted to live in his body forever at one point in his development. You know, he wanted to create a body of light like uh, he thought St. Paul did. And um, oh. But as he, got, as he got older, he discovered that maybe, maybe that's not what I want, you know. It's too limiting, you know, for me to be Charles as light and uh, let that one go. But I, you know, you talk about that, having immortality. Some people spend lots and lots of money to have themselves cryogenically frozen, right? So they can come back <laughs> at a later, later time. I, I, maybe this is barking up the wrong tree, isn't it? That we're, we're looking for immortality <laughs> in all the wrong places. Well, it, it's interesting because that big cryogenic uh, facility is over here uh, not far from where I live uh, in Scottsdale and yes people spend 
oh, several hundred thousand dollars to get themselves cryogenically uh, frozen so that when science discovers a cure from whatever they died of, uh, they can come back. And that has always <laughs> just boggled my mind. Yeah. Um, because, of course, they separate the head from the body. And mm. uh, so they would have to reattach it somehow. It's just, <laughs> you know. But you think of how many people talk about, you know, immortality. There's even so many uh, scientists that are saying, well, I think we can, we have the possibility of being able to live to 120, maybe even 150. And I, I don't think I've ever met anybody in their 90s. And I've, I've worked with elderly people since I was a teenager. I've always loved elderly people. I've always worked with them, um, visited them in nursing homes and, and all this. I don't think I've ever met anyone in their 90s who said, golly, I hope I live for another 60 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, seriously, you know. It's, and yet there's this idea that I want to be me for right. longer. Right. I don't want to be me yeah. until tomorrow. You know, I'm afraid to die. Right. I don't want to be. I don't want to be somebody I don't know. Who will I be without my body? I think that's a big question for people. Who will I be without my body? And that's why you know you talk about the no self uh, uh, things like that and the no thingness. Uh, Nothingness, I call it no thingness, um, and people don't people don't get that. You know, will I still be manifest without a physical body? Right. And to be able to imagine manifestation outside of my physical body, who is that? What is that? And I think that's really um, something that people question. And I, I don't know that there's an easy answer, uh, except that it's mind. All is mind. Everything is mind. And, of course, the Buddhists would say that, you know, that there's sort of um, aggregates of ourselves that reform, right? That we go through a, a death experience and then certain elements of ourselves come back together. And, and if there's karma to work out, et cetera. But... Eventually, after we've done our full work, you know, we, we come to the stage where we have a, a, a total extinguishing of that. So we don't have to return. Like, for instance, the Buddha supposedly doesn't come back anymore because he's fulfilled right. himself. Right. He's burned himself completely out, if you like. Um, and and that's the, actually Nirvana means that blowing out, you know, blowing out of the necessity for the endless uh, rebirths of of the universe. Um you know, whichever way you believe, I th I think um, the essence is love, right? The essence, the essence is a bliss, uh, and so you know you're going into greater and greater bliss. So why why fear that? You know, why why hold on to an attachment to be you when you can have bliss? You know, when you can have limitless love and joy. Um, so it, it's kind of insanity, I think, after a while, to think that I want to just hold on to me. When, you know, the, the, all this is available to you, it's wonderful. Right. That's part of the illusion, you know, right. that I have to exist forever. Right. It's even part of the illusion that I exist now. I exist in some form, 
But then can I exist without this physical vehicle? Um, and I think the near-death experiences have done a lot to show people that, yes, we, we can exist uh, outside of the physical vehicle. Um, I've, I've only known one person personally that had a near-death experience, and, and that person just said, I will never be afraid to die. He said, it's amazing the existence right. that you feel without your physical body. And I think that's something that, you know, people who've experienced NDEs can explain. But uh, it's hard for, for the rest of us to really grasp that idea. Right. You know, I was watching one of my grandchildren um, at Thanksgiving, and she's seven now, and um, just watching her interact and and realize that those are the moments that are truly real is the 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 it's sort of it's hard to pin down even what's happening but you feel a connection to that child or to that person because they make they they say something or they do something and you think aha you know i can remember when i was seven and, and making connections and and i thought that's the validity not not that that person is an individual uh, ego or um, physical being uh, any more than I am, but those moments of connectedness. And, um, you know, I've had a lot of experience as a minister with people in transition, including my late wife who died of breast cancer. And it's those moments that, that are beyond time that, that are the most precious, I think. And, and that's, that's what, for me, makes life valid, right? It's, uh, it's not right. just walking around in a physical, um, suit that's going to eventually wear out you know what do they call it a uh, skin and bones the uh, space suit that's going to just rot into the <laughs> ground eventually, right right and and it's those connections that uh that i believe are maintained um i i personally believe that we always have connections with people uh in future lives uh people yeah. that we've known in in this life um, I know just from personal feelings um, about certain people that I've known them before. You meet them and it's like, bam, I've known this person before. So I don't think we ever give up those, those connections. And it's the connections uh, of love. It's the connections that is the divine within us. Uh, whatever you perceive that divine being it, it's the divine within us that keeps us connected keeps us connected to one another keeps us connected to uh, to divinity wherever however you perceive that that's beautiful um i i don't want to spend too long on on a couple of chapters because i want to get to the choosing death consciously but you you mentioned about the business of illness right and people who prosper from our fear of death and then Unfortunately, some of our medical industry is based on the pharmacological industry is based on that, you know, that buys into our fears. But, you know, right. things are changing slightly, I think. Uh, certainly since I've been doing what I do, uh, I've seen a shift, you know, the hospice movement, um, dying with dignity and grace, um, the, the awareness of, uh, uh, you know, that it's not just about keeping the body going. I think that's growing, isn't it? It's slow, but it, I think there is a shift going right. on. 
and and dying consciously, right? Being having a good death, you know, whatever that means to you. Because um, some people, you know, resist and resist. But in every case that I've dealt with, and I don't know if you agree with this, but at the very end, even the the, the greatest resistors come to a a sense of peace, right? They finally let go and they realize that this is okay, you know, that death is natural and they, they come to terms with, with it. And uh, it's beautiful to see sometimes, especially the ones that have been the most restless. And then there's a shift at the end, you know, where they realize, right. oh, no, it's okay, it's all right. Yes, yes. I've, I've experienced that myself with, uh, as I've worked with elderly people over the years, um, and and yet ultimately it has to be okay because that's what it is. Um, and I think you know when you um, when you talk about how we're becoming more accepting of death uh, in the in the medical community, um, the Kevin Hasselhorst, the doctor, the emergency room doctor that I've met over here in uh, in Scottsdale, and I think Dr. Hasselhorst. Uh, has done a lot to help people um, get things sorted out um, to understand death and dying. To have he even calls for a universal um, uh, care directive. He said people don't even think about you know what if I am in a car wreck and I can't speak for myself. What do I really want? You know how how do I want to stay alive? Do I want to stay alive? And I think that, that more and more doctors are are really looking hard at that. Uh, as I pointed out with Brent's, um, Brent's radiologist uh, toward the end, uh, who uh, had never even thought about, uh, you know, death or dying. And he was so amazed at Brent's attitude. And, you know, and he sat and talked to us for a long time about, why do you feel the way you feel? And, and he ended up actually taking a course from a Buddhist monk up here at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale on death and dying. And uh, he contacted me later and said it was really helpful and beneficial. And he was so glad that he knew Brent uh, and, and myself um, that has really helped him in his practice. So I, I think that was really a, a beautiful gift that, that Brent gave all of us really is, is, you know, how to die. And, and I think that's great. So you talk about suicide and assisted suicide. Where are you in, in that regard? Well, I'm just sort of open. Um, I have known numerous people who uh, have committed suicide. Um, I know that in some religions they believe that suicide, you know, is, is a sin. Um, I, I've never looked at it that way. Um, I think that suicide, it's obviously a personal choice and intention is everything. And I think, you know, what is the intent? Is the intent to, to alleviate pain and suffering? That's, you know, to me, that's, you know, that matters, you know, in Buddhism, intention is everything. And you can't really judge another person because you don't know another person's mind. How do you know what that person is going through? Um, Assisted suicide, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy about that. Um, And yet, again, I don't think we can judge, you know, what 
that person is going through enough to say, oh, you don't really want to do this. You really want to live, right? Um, it, to me, it's not up to me, you know, to judge. And I don't know. Um, I think there will always be a controversy about assisted suicide. Um, I think we have to get be at a higher level of spiritual thinking to get beyond it. But, uh, you know, I, I have really... You know, I just kind of kind of leave it out there. <laughs> I don't have any real hard opinions. Right. I, I think, you know, people are afraid of abuse and things like that, that, you know, we, they may not really yeah. want, to, want to be assisted, and, and they are uh, for expediency's sake. So it, 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 there's a lot of concerns in that regard. But on the other hand, you know, it can be a very merciful release, I think, you know, in certain circumstances. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's, and I know some people, you know, Myrtle Fillmore, the, the one of the co-founders of Unity, you know, had a conscious death. You know, she said pretty much when she was going to die, and um, knew knew you know the time and the and, and finished everything that she needed to do, and she did. She died, you know, at that, at that time. Um, it's, that's a high level of awareness, isn't it? Where you can consciously, oh, yeah. I think that happens in, you know, no, the Tibetan Buddhists have done that as well, you know, that they, they, they give the time and date that they're going to pass and lo and behold, you know, there they go. Um, th right. that's, that's, that's a very conscious death, isn't it? It is very much so. Yes. They, they say, you know, that, okay, today I'm going to die. There's that, uh, that movie, um, and I can never remember the name of the movie, but, you know, the old Indian, he would go out of his, his tent every morning and go, today is a good day to die. And off he would go. <laughs> and and then he would come back in the evening because it wasn't the day to die. And then, of course, finally he did. So I yeah. think that, so, that even we can learn to die consciously. We may not be able to say the exact time and, and, and day of our death, but I think dying consciously with conscious awareness, um, you know, the dying process has a lot of conscious awareness to it. And I think if we understood the dying process more, we would be able to have a greater conscious awareness of the process. Well, and, and yeah, I think it was Crazy Horse that said that today's a good day to die. Um, oh. <laughs> but you know, it's an embrace of life, isn't it? It's saying... I. I am ready for anything, right? I am open to an abundance of life. And therefore, if, if that means death, which is part of life, then I'm open to that too. Um, I'm not fearful of ever anything. A bit like those people who climb the mountains and do the you know extreme sports. They're, they're not wanting to die that day, right? But if they do, that's okay, because they're doing what they want to do is more important than and staying safe, right? And, and uh, exactly. to, have that, to have that wonderful courage to live life that way, uh, you know, is, is a, a great example. I mean, I think Jesus uh, and some of the other great teachers, you know, they weren't concerned about how long they were going to live on this planet, right? Um, they, 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 they were doing their thing. If it left, if it meant death, then okay, you know, that we'll, we'll go through that. Um, and, but few of us have that... Uh, that extreme courage to, to live that radically, I think, yeah. Right, right. And, and, and you're right. I mean, it isn't open to 
whatever is. You know, if I die today, that's okay. Um, and and I think that being open to whatever is is the important thing. You know, Brent was always open to whatever was in his life. Um, and I think that's so important to be able to have a good life and to have a good death. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and just to know that it's not over, right? That, like you said, I, I, I felt my uh, late wife's presence many, many times. And um, she'll come back to visit every so often, you know. And uh, just last year, a few months ago, actually, it was, um, I heard her voice for the first time in a while because we, we had a commemoration at the church and, and uh, she used to do the meditation. So we, we listened to the meditation that day. And it was the first time I'd heard her voice in many years because she died in 2003. And um, I was quite taken aback because in a way I'd forgotten her voice. And, um, but then after the service was over and it was, it was uh, COVID, so it was done remotely, I went to the back porch and, and my, my present wife looked down and there was a coin. She likes to see dimes and collects them on the ground. So she thought, oh, it's a dime. Well, she picked it up and it was um, a Hindu rupee. And of course, my, my first wife and I had met in India and, and uh, we were connected in that way. And I thought, well, how many rupees are there in my backyard? You know, that's that's highly <laughs> unlikely that, that, that uh, I would have dropped a rupee. And I haven't been to India in, in many years. Um, but it was a sign to me that she was around. You know, that was the first time I'd heard her voice in many years. And there, there was the rupee. It was like saying, I'm here, you know. And uh, so, yeah, there's little things like that, right? Right, right. And and that comes with being aware, being aware of of what is in our lives, whether it's you know, being aware of someone we've lost and picking up little signals um, or just being aware generally. We sleep the, oh, Most the people sleep. <laughs> We're not sleepwalking, but we are thanking Claire Goldsbury for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Claire. What a great show. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Paul. Thank you. And thanks for listening, folks. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.